Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Josh Fried, Senior Vice President for the Clean Energy Program at Third Way. Third Way is a national think tank that champions modern center-left ideas. Their work's grounded in mainstream American values of opportunity, freedom, and security. As founder and leader of Third Way's Clean Energy Program, Josh promotes policies to use every tool possible to combat climate change, including scaled-up innovation, advanced nuclear, and carbon capture technologies, in addition to the increased use of renewables and efficient storage. Josh has been at Third Way since 2009, where he's overseen their clean energy and climate advocacy efforts, serving as the organization's chief strategist on these issues. He regularly advises senior federal and state policymakers, philanthropies, academics, and business leaders. We cover a lot in this episode, including Josh's history and what led him to Third Way, what the climate and energy teams look like when he got there versus what they look like today, the Third Way founding story, what the organization stands for, the type of work that it does, how they go about it, and some example projects. And we have a great discussion about where we are with climate change, where we need to get to, what some of the barriers and headwinds are, how advanced nuclear, carbon capture, and other technologies can help, where policy fits in, the upcoming 2020 election. I really appreciate Josh's perspective on these issues because this guy knows a lot. I'm excited for you to hear this one. So let's get him on. Josh Freed, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Technically, I'm a guest in your office, so it's nice to be back. Always a pleasure. So you guys are one of the major players in the advocacy world, especially in the position you've carved out in the center left and working on some interesting stuff. And you seem to be everywhere as I'm kind of making the rounds. It's, uh, you know, if there's something interesting going on, I feel like Third Way's involved. So really psyched to share your story with listeners, but also just selfishly to spend 45 minutes or an hour together and learn. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always fun to talk to you about both what you've learned and what you're seeing from others and also the questions as someone who knows a fair amount about this space, but from a very different perspective, brings into it. So we're also always learning as well. So I'm excited to do this with you. I appreciate that. I wonder, though, like a bunch of insiders actually listen to the pod. It's not just outsiders like I thought it would be, but it's kind of a mix of it's uh, insiders maybe focused on one piece, but that want to get a broader perspective across other pieces, or it's outsiders who are pretty accomplished group, but not necessarily up to speed on climate stuff and want to be. But I feel like from the insiders, it's almost like I'm like a mascot who's just running around with no information. And so they get out their popcorn and they're just looking to see what landmines I step on or something. Yeah. It's funny though, because I think one of the challenges I've seen both myself run into and my team is how insidery climate, climate advocacy, and clean energy can be. I started full-time in the clean energy and climate advocacy space 10 and a half years ago when I came to Third Way and helped stand up the clean energy program. Prior to that, my experience had been on political campaigns and working either for a couple of members of Congress or on advocacy efforts, in many cases having nothing to do with climate. And so I started in a similar position to you as an outsider who was learning the ropes and had to stop people who used a lot of the jargon. And I think like any space, but particularly a space that has a lot of engineers and scientists and technical components to it, it can very quickly get very jargony, get very insidery, and it creates a lot of barriers, barriers to entry from investors from other sectors who want to come in, advocates, and particularly as we need to get more of the public or other policymakers and leaders who care about climate but haven't traditionally been involved in that space, in this space, more interested in it, the insider-outsider component barriers need to be broken down. So having someone like yourself who understands the space but is learning about it saying, okay, stop, let's explore this more, challenging assumptions, challenging jargon, and having other insiders listen to that 
becomes really helpful to remind us, oh, we need to be accessible because we're not always accessible. Well, that's good encouragement. Thank you. I'll take it at face value and be encouraged to keep on the path that I'm on. But maybe that's a good transition point. So, I mean, what was it? So take me back. So you're working on more of the legislative side and what led you to switch gears and enter the advocacy world and what led you to choose Third Way and what did it look like at the time? Yeah. Taking the Wayback Machine from 2002 through 2007, I worked on Capitol Hill for a couple of different members of Congress, mostly Congresswoman Diana DeGette from Colorado. And working for a Westerner, you become, as someone who's a native to the D.C. area, much more appreciative of both the environment, wilderness, the interaction on a daily basis between people and the environment in which they live. And I worked on as the communications director and deputy chief of staff for her. So I touched every issue and I was able to see and really learn and feel whether it's just the impact of wildlands or the bark beetle, which has been accelerating in Colorado in destroying a lot of the native forests there, enhanced by climate change. Just, wow, this is a really important issue. Water is a huge issue in Colorado. So I started to become more interested in environment and climate as an issue. Left Capitol Hill to work on the Obama campaign in 2008 for the ad agency that did all of its digital and paid media. And was looking at the end of that campaign in October of 2008, just what did I want to do next? And I think like anyone who's trying to figure out the next part of their career, I just talked to a lot of people. Third Way kept coming up as an interesting dynamic organization. A friend of mine, Jim Kessler, was one of the founders of Third Way. So I came over and started talking to him and others here, and they made a really compelling pitch. If you want to have an impact think creatively, do different things. And in this position, at the time that the Obama administration was just starting out, they were handing me an opportunity to stand up bigger climate and energy program here. And it just seemed like a really great combination, engaging in a startup, doing policy and advocacy, but doing it in a different way than going into an administration, working in government it was a unique opportunity at the right time in life for me. And what's the Third Way founding story? When did it come about? How did it come about? So Third Way is, was founded in 2005. And we were founded in the wake of John Kerry's loss in the 2004 election to George W. Bush. And if you remember at the time, not only did Bush win, but he brought in a number of Republican senators that we were hoping would lose. And one of the realizations that the founders of Third Way had was that Democrats were still not arming their candidates and particularly senators with a broad array of center-left policies that they could go onto the campaign trail and talk about and then enact when they got back elected into office. So we started off with a, a very modest agenda, which is to provide modern center-left ideas to federal office holders and particularly senators. And happily for us, over the years, the demand for our ideas, for our messaging has just expanded exponentially. So we went from being focused in one House of Congress on a relatively narrow set of economic issues to now being a multi-issue think tank that works with all branches of the federal government. Got it. And so think tank, does that mean C3, C4? Do you have an arm of both? We're both a C3 and a C4. And translating that for folks who are not in the nonprofit world, it means that we are primarily an organization that focuses on educating the public and policymakers on issues. But we do engage with working with policymakers also to a certain amount on crafting legislation and taking positions on specific legislation. It is not by any means close to the majority of what we do. Most of what we do is just educate people on climate change or on economic issues or on national security issues like cybersecurity. But when key pieces of legislation come up, we can take positions on them. So the climate and energy division, did it exist before you got here? We had done some work on climate and energy prior to my joining in 2008. 
And the decision was made with the start of the Obama administration that there were going to be a lot more opportunities and a lot more interest in climate and energy policy. And so they decided to create a full program and brought me on board to start standing that up. Uh huh. And so what does that program look like today in terms of scope and areas of focus? And then how is that different from when you started? When I started, to be honest, we were trying to figure out what we were doing. And so it was myself and one other employee. And we had to really spend some time thinking about what it meant for Third Way and the central effort at large to take on climate. And the issue at the time was also that we were standing up our program as a new Democratic administration was taking office, and there were a wide variety of ideas already out in the marketplace. So if you remember, when President Obama had been sworn in, there was a lot of momentum already there for cap and trade. And we defined our role early on as looking at really helping find how to improve cap and trade and then get moderate centrists to understand it and talk about it in a way that we could move forward with it because the train had already very much left the station. Fast forward to 2019 and our program is now focused because we're going to have to recreate climate policy with the next administration on broadly, how do we get the United States on the path so that we are at net zero carbon pollution by 2050 at the absolute latest. And it means using every and all clean energy technologies and clean fuels that we have and investing a significant amount more in innovation so that we can invent or improve the technologies we still need. Now, when you say net zero carbon, are you talking about new emissions? We're talking about net zero emissions across the economy. And one thing that's been coming up in my discussions to date is that the... There's a lot of talk about emissions reduction and getting to net zero, but if you look at the carbon that's in the atmosphere already, the new emissions is actually a very small percentage of the overall pie, and because it takes hundreds of years to dissipate, that even if we handle the new emissions, which is a beast, and we absolutely should, but that it's not going to do much to take our head out of a vice in terms of our overall carbon problem. So is that true? Do you agree? How should I be thinking about this? Look, I mean, the way Third Way thinks about it is we impact US policy. And so with the challenge that we have in front of us today is across the economy, virtually every sector is continues to emit a significant amount of carbon and other greenhouse gases. We've got to stop that. And if we both look at policy and technology, there are a lot of steps that we still need to take to get there. We also do need to invest in direct air capture so that we can start removing some of the carbon that's in the atmosphere out of the atmosphere. But that is still more of an innovation challenge and a cost challenge to get to the point where that happens. So those are the bites that we are focused on. And that's plenty for us. Uh huh. So when you look at the net zero by 2050 at the latest, within that, you mentioned direct air capture. Is there a well-defined portfolio of solutions that you're focused on bringing to bear? Yeah, for us, there is. And I think that for any organization, and particularly one our size, we're relatively small. We've got seven full-time staff and- oh, That's it. You guys punch above your weight class. We do as much as we can. Climate is an easy issue to be very motivated on. We look at this and say, okay, where can Third Way provide value add? Where can we have the most impact? And looking at what our expertise is, where there is demand, where we have passion, our focus is on how do you develop the policies and support investment in innovation from the federal government and demand pull that the federal government can create so that we can reduce emissions in the three largest emitting sectors of the economy. So that's transportation, that's the power sector, and that's industrial emissions. And one of the challenges, of course, has been that most of the attention, not all of it, but most of it has been on the power sector because in some ways, both in terms of technology and also the policy levers that you can pull, that is the relatively easiest sector. So it's one that we've also been focused primarily on. 
And as we've been able to both grow our expertise and capacity, we've started to branch out. And it's also, we've started to look at these other sectors because several of the solutions that we advocate for have multiple applications. And so if you look at the solution areas that you mentioned, what is the third way role and how do you go about determining how to prioritize where you spend your time if what you're trying to do is help those things get to market faster and at bigger scale? So third way has a couple of roles. I think where we work with a lot of other groups. And so we are part of a community of advocacy organizations that work together to identify what are the smart solutions, how are they going to have impact likely, and that's determined through partners doing modeling, doing other assessments of both with existing technologies, if we pull certain policy levers, where are they going to go, and also analyzing what the likelihood of success of emerging technologies may be. For third way, our focus is on working with policymakers in Washington, D.C. So that's primarily Democrats in the House and the Senate. And when Democrats control the administration across the executive branch, we also work with a number of folks in the Department of Energy and other federal departments, regardless of who controls the White House. What's smart policy? How do you implement it? Who else do you need to bring on board from both the advocacy community, other interested parties, business community to both build support for these policies, but also provide input on whether it's the right direction? How do you message it? What's the story that you want to tell? How do you talk about it to people outside of the energy and climate community so that it's easily understandable? And then how do you interact with other groups that you need to put together to get this done? So those are the three big areas, if you think about it, policymaking, communications, and outreach and coalition engagement. And there are other groups that do other things, a lot of other groups that do other parts of it or work with us on different aspects of these components. Uh huh. And so if you take on a project, does it tend to be the same handful of projects over a sustained period, or is that portfolio constantly shifting with start dates and end dates and shuffling the mix all the time? We try to stay focused on a slightly longer game. There are both on the technology side and on the development of policy side, there are very few quick fixes. And so in a world dominated by Twitter and it feels like everything's changing every moment, both in terms of the news cycle and people's focus, we'll look at an issue and we'll take advanced nuclear as one of the technologies that we advocate for. Good. I was just going to ask you to talk about a specific example. We started working on that in earnest in 2014. And we looked at it and realized that that's a technology that if we are successful and the innovators are successful and other advocates are successful, it will get commercialized by the middle to end of the next decade, 2025, 2030. So we set out in 2014 recognizing that this was a solution that we were advocating for that would take as much as 15 years to come to fruition. And so we set six-month, one-year, three-year five-year milestones to check against, to see were we on the right path? Are we getting done what we need to get done? And then ask ourselves what's next. So we always have a balance. What's the long-term goal we're trying to reach? And then what are the short and medium-term objectives that we can measure ourselves against? Because we want to make sure that we're either on the right path, and if not, where do we need to course correct to get back on that path. So what would be an example if you take that advanced nuclear of a short-term objective or a medium-term objective that you'd measure yourself against? So, I mean, the first objective, when we started, our first objective was to convince people within both the Obama administration and on Capitol Hill that advanced nuclear was a potentially viable solution to climate change and to generating electricity. When we started working on it, there was a lot of skepticism even within the Department of Energy, that anyone was working on advanced nuclear, which we define as any non-light water reactor technology, particularly those that are smaller than the large thousand megawatt reactors that are in operation today. 
So we had to start from scratch. And the first thing we did was create a map that showed where all the projects that are being developed in the United States and in Canada that were supported either by the private sector or in partnership with academic institutions to say, hey, it's more than one or two people that are on a lark. And we found that there were over 40 projects. We vetted them internally, and then we met with folks at the Department of Energy, including then Secretary of Energy Ernie Moniz, and said, this is real. And what we need right now is not a huge amount of federal money, but we need to streamline how innovators get access to the Department of Energy and the national labs so that more research can be done. And we tested that out. It was very easy to tell whether we were going to succeed or fail with that by whether the people that were in positions to decide whether this was real or not looked at the work we did and said, this is interesting. We want to check this out and we want to work with you if it's accurate. Or if they said, this isn't real, we're not interested and shut the door. And each time we went and met with people, showed them the maps, brought in people that we were working with either from the innovation community, Ross Konigstein, Ray Rothrock, who's a venture capitalist and nuclear engineer from MIT, Rachel Pritzker, who supports clean energy innovation, were the earliest supporters of our work and thought partners on it, walked with us to a lot of these meetings and presented with us, and it captured people's imagination. So we knew then that we were on the right track And it unfolded from there to getting support from elected officials, seeing legislation introduced, seeing actions happening, seeing the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, start to evaluate whether they needed to modernize some of their licensing requirements to adapt to a different type of reactor design, and see other NGOs join us and groups like Clean Air Task Force and the Breakthrough Institute, which were amongst the original other advocacy groups and nonprofits that worked with us, start to come in and say, oh, this is really interesting. Yeah, we should support this and work on this. And what was the criteria that led you to greenlight all of that work for advanced nuclear? So in other words, if you are evaluating a new area, whether it be advanced nuclear or carbon capture and storage or or something else, what's the criteria that makes it above the bar to be a third-way project? Yeah. For us, we look at it and say, does it have a potential to have a serious impact on helping reduce emissions, either by displacing fossil fuel or addressing other energy demand that exists within the United States? Are there other groups advocating for it? If there's a lot of other NGOs that are already working on the issue, and particularly if they are, and there's not a unique value add because of the customers that we serve or what we believe is our expertise in communications, in working with other organizations and outreach and in development of policy, we don't work on it. If we look at an issue and say people aren't working on it and it has the potential to have a really important impact on climate change and we can provide these value adds, Then we look at it and talk to experts outside of third way as well as in third way doing our own research to determine, is this really real? Is this viable? So for example, with advanced nuclear, we talked to a number of academics, a number of innovators within the advanced nuclear field, venture capitalists and others to say, is this viable? Could advanced nuclear be developed and turn into a technology that is potentially competitive with other resources that are on the grid and provide carbon-free electricity? The answer was, yeah, it could be, but there's a bunch of steps that need to be taken. Most of the obstacles, to be honest, are not technological from their point at the time. It's much more of, there's a lot of uncertainty with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Will they provide a path to licensing that's affordable? And will the Department of Energy engage and open up the national labs in a constructive way so that innovators have access to them. We said, huh, those are things Third Way can help on. Yeah, let's jump in on that. And when you talk about, forget the exact word that you use, but big impact for climate change, are there specific metrics that would clue you into that or that you look at when evaluating? It's not specific metrics as much as, as we talk to a variety of others outside 
what's our sense of how big an impact it could be? And so, look, it's really hard to predict at this point, both domestically and internationally, what the market for advanced nuclear could be. But if you look at how many existing nuclear plants are going to retire starting in the 2030s, how much natural gas is currently on the grid, how much natural gas is also relied upon for industrial processes, you can see a lot of potential for advanced nuclear to come on and provide a significant amount of carbon-free electricity, industrial heat, et cetera. I am being very careful not to provide a specific number because we don't know what that number is. I mean, that's frankly part of what's both interesting for us with it, but why it's much more on a case-by-case basis evaluating and getting a sense of could this have a big impact rather than specific metric, number of gigawatts or amount of carbon displaced. From a paying the bills standpoint, is everything through donations or do you have clients as well? No, we're a nonprofit. So everything, we get philanthropic support to advocate for solutions to climate change that can get broad support from the central left. And what type of involvement is there from industry? So if you take advanced nuclear, for example, how much are you actually spending time with the advanced nuclear companies? And then out of those, what does that mix look like between the emergent companies, the startups, and the large incumbents? Yeah. I mean, look, we work with and talk to a wide variety of companies. Ultimately, it's going to be the private sector that invents, builds, purchases, and operates these plants. And you can apply that to any sector. So if we're talking about vehicles, it's going to be the private sector that invents, builds, sells, maintains, and charges electric vehicles. That's going to purchase a large number of them for fleet vehicle operations. So what we want to do is understand from these companies, big and small, what are your criteria for developing, purchasing, bringing to market, using whatever the technology or whatever the solution set we're looking at is so that we can understand what from the private sector's perspective is viable or not. What are their considerations? And it's been interesting. I'll give you one example that has emerged over the last couple of years is there are a number of utilities now that either have committed to or are looking at committing to getting their own generation to net zero or close to net zero. And as they've looked at, how do you get there by whatever date they commit to? In some cases, it's 2050. In some cases, it's earlier. What we've seen is an increasing openness and interest by those companies in carbon capture, in advanced nuclear because they know they can get to a certain percentage of zero carbon electricity with renewables, with hydro. But once you get beyond that, and it's different for each utility, they see real challenges, particularly if long duration energy storage doesn't become more viable and more affordable. And so it continues to create more demand for innovation, for different technology options, and for more creative thinking, frankly, both on the policy side for What are the policies to ensure that we get to 100% clean or net zero? And also, what are the policies to support development of technologies like advanced nuclear, like carbon capture, like advanced geothermal that can expand the portfolio of options that the private sector has? I mean, we could spend a whole episode talking about the science and what's the right optimal mix of for power and for transport. And we could go right down the list of drawdown categories and stuff like that. But from my investigation so far, it seems like the biggest issue and lack of clarity is not a scientific one. It's a political one. Would you agree with that statement? It's both. Fortunately for me, my background is more on the political side. So let's stick with that. We have other people on the team that focus on more of the science side of what's the right mix, both from a generation perspective or whichever sector you're looking at, but also what's the right mix, the optimal mix economically, because you've got to have a system that is affordable, that provides whatever metric of reliability you're measuring depending on the sector, and to your point, is 
politically viable. Yeah, and I guess said a different way, I mean, I'm not a scientist either, but I think that I trust that there's enough viable solutions that are out there, maybe not to get us all the way to 100%, but that are not being deployed, that if they were deployed would be helpful, right? Yes, Yes, absolutely. But but from a political landscape, particularly here in the US, although obviously it's a, a global challenge as well, but different in different places, but we just can't get out of our own way. Yeah, and I think that's the challenge in a lot of places right now. And look, The U.S. is in a unique moment of time, not just on climate change, but on a lot of issues where you've got a Republican party. I mean, it's a two-party system, right? And you've got a Republican party where the majority of members, unfortunately, starting at the top with the president, are still unwilling to act. And it's unfortunately the reality. And so it's going to be very difficult to get the kind of aggressive, comprehensive action that we need the window of of the next five to 10 years to really build and build momentum to get to net zero in any reasonable amount of time. It could be viewed as an extremely partisan statement, but I think it's the challenge we just have to acknowledge when you unfortunately do have a president who continues to deny that climate is even changing and changing because of human activity. And you look at the people that he's appointed to positions like the EPA, like his top science advisors, and on and on. That's the bad news. The good news is that slowly you are starting to see more individual Republicans, even in office, start to acknowledge that climate change is happening. It is a challenge that needs to be addressed now. And they're starting to propose some solutions. I think the big thing that I take issue with that is very concerning is it is neither the solutions that they're embracing right now are neither sufficient nor are they broad enough to accomplish what I think we need to on the time frame we need to. But that is a challenge that is both a Republican Party challenge and it's a challenge of how do the rest of us in the climate advocacy community communicate about this. It's the point that we started with on insider versus outsider. What's the language we use? How do we bring more people into the fold to say, we need to act on climate change and here's a way to do it that will be beneficial to the majority, the overwhelming majority of the public. So given that, would you say that the 2020 presidential election is an important moment in climate work? Look, I think the 2020 election is one of the most important elections in the history of the country. And it goes far beyond climate. Climate is certainly one of the top issues we've seen in polling that Third Way has done and other polling that climate is a top three issue for Democratic voters. And it is an increasingly salient issue for Democratic and independent voters. And certainly the paths that the United States would take if there is a Donald Trump second term versus a Democrat in the White House on climate would be extraordinarily different. And a Trump second term would be devastating for climate change. A Democrat done right would very much put us on the right path. But I also want to put that in context. Third Way is a multi-issue think tank. I talk to colleagues across different issue areas, and you just see it on the in the news and on TV every day. Let's just be real. The Trump administration has a number of enormous, huge problems that they've created for the public, and there's a number of reasons why we need to get rid of it. It is a climate issue, but it is not just a climate issue. Okay, so I'd love to talk about that because, I mean, I agree with you. That guy's got to go, but- Then you look at, there's kind of two different lenses. There's the, well, what is the candidate that's going to best represent my values and put us on the best path and things like that? And then it's like, what's the candidate that's going to get it done and give us the best possibility of getting that guy out of office? It seems like there's, the Democrats have a real fork in the road where you've got kind of the establishment, the more more rings around the tree, more understanding the system, how to work within the system, how to how to get stuff done across the aisle. And then you've got more of the burned it down crowd. Right? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think one of the things that's been really exciting and promising in this, and I can't believe it's what, July of 2019 and the presidential election is already in full swing. I think all of us would rather spend our time focusing on summer vacation 
or our day-to-day work or what's happening in baseball or whatever your sport or, or hobby of choice is. But this is the lot we live that the presidential campaign's already happening. The good news is that there is a really robust competition for creative ideas on how to address climate. And one of the tickets to entry as I think a serious candidate for the Democratic nomination for president is thinking very deeply about climate change and being committed to action. And so if you look at the field, whether you are one is the establishment candidate, whether one is taking on a path to the the nomination from any different perspective, I think almost all of them have really interesting, viable plans to address climate change. And that has not always been the case. So in order to enact meaningful climate legislation, is bipartisan support essential for it to be durable? It is in the long term. And I think that one of the steps we need to see to get there is that voters are increasingly including climate as an issue, not the only issue, but one of the issues by which they evaluate and vote for candidates. And so I think the more you see candidates win in part because they are campaigning on climate or lose because they're not perceived as having commitment to action on climate, you'll start to see more bipartisanship there. I think the other part of it that's important is climate action needs to be inclusive. I think one of the challenges that we face is that there are a variety of people in this country who haven't felt that they were part of the picture of what addressing climate change looked like. And that not only includes groups that the left is increasingly including, like communities of color, which absolutely need to be a bigger part of the solution, but we also need to be very cognizant that in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio and the Dakotas, particularly North Dakota, there are large communities that have had significant benefit from the natural gas revolution. And these are people that are working really good jobs, that they're able to put food on their table, save for college, everything else, because natural gas has become so abundant and affordable in the United States. And we can't be in a position where any of those communities feel that we are shaming them or casting aspersions on them because of what they do. Well, what's the answer? I mean, if you could wave your magic wand and put one policy in place that you think would have the biggest impact, what is it and how does it work? I think that putting all of our eggs on addressing climate change into one basket is part of the challenge. What we're talking about here is trying to change economic activity across the US and the global economy where how carbon pollution is created in transportation looks very different from how it's created in the power sector. So I think it's one policy I'd say is that we don't bet on one policy, that we look at this and one of my favorite descriptors is you got to put as many shots on goal as possible. And we've got to try everything on climate. So it very well could be a clean energy standard in the electricity sector and a lower zero carbon fuel standard that's separate in the transportation sector. It could be a price on carbon. We've got to try it all and see as we move forward in 2020, 2021, what emerges as the most likely and durable set of solutions. I think the more important thing right there is that we make sure that it includes all clean energy technology solutions, and it includes a heavy investment in innovation. The thing that frankly scares me or concerns me the most on the climate advocacy side is the idea that somehow we can select a handful of the most favored solutions because somehow one technology is purer than another. I get nervous, very nervous, and I don't think it's either viable nor does it emphasize how urgent climate is if we say it's got to be 100% renewables, or if we say we can't use any natural gas even if carbon capture is on it because natural gas and extracting it is just so bad that we have to shut that all down. I think that when we start rolling out solutions that could power the economy without producing carbon, 
we make it that much harder to get political support and we make it that much harder to actually address climate change. If I'm hearing right from you, though, it sounds like price on carbon isn't at the top or maybe even not even near the top of your list. I think we need to see. You've seen what's happened in Australia where they had a price on carbon and it was repealed. When you see what's happening in France, there are real challenges politically right now to see a price on carbon happening in the United States even in 2021. Politics, as we've seen with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, can change very quickly. And if the opportunity arises to have one and depends on what the price is and what the impact is, that would be great. There are other groups that are also doing a lot of great work on how to structure a carbon price, how to build the politics around a carbon price. That's what those groups are working on We are focused on other parts like the clean energy standard, like investing in innovation, like how do you reduce industrial emissions that we're going to continue to focus on. And as other political opportunities pop, we will join and try to take advantage of those and focus on our goal, which is getting to net zero. One thing I've heard from Republicans is that, especially Republicans focused on climate, is that Trump doesn't actually reflect conservative ideals and that there are conservative ideals that can bring about meaningful climate policy. In other words, don't judge Republicans by who's in office right now. I'm curious. I mean, you guys are center left. If you look at maybe some of the center right stuff and more traditional conservative ideals, what are your thoughts on that as it relates to climate? Is there common ground there that gives potential for bipartisanship or is it very polarized? I think there's a difference between a conservative and a Republican. There are plenty of conservatives in terms of organizations, in terms of thinkers who I think absolutely reflect your statement, that they've got ideas on how to act on climate, they've got serious policy ideas, serious ways to discuss it, that could have a big impact. Like who? ClearPath is an example. I think what Jerry Taylor, who is more of a libertarian, and Niskanen is another really excellent example. There's a group called Cress, which works on serious conservative solutions to address clean energy and get more clean energy developed and on the grid is doing a lot of good work in that space. There are a number of others. The challenge is, and you see if there is the head of the party, if that person's the president, sets the agenda for the party. And that is going to be the number one obstacle for Republicans as opposed to conservatives acting on climate until and when Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States. And then we'll see how the Republican Party evolves and adapts. But the president sets the agenda and the tone for uh, the entire party. And maybe just like a quick rapid fire session, if we can, but Green New Deal, should we be leaning into it or what are your thoughts? Look, the Green New Deal is a phrase. It's very unclear what is actually in it. And I think that what's more important is to see what is the Democratic nominee and then if that person gets elected, her or his agenda and how do they sell it? So it's less about the branding and more about the substance? It's less about the branding and more about the substance. That's something I've been pondering is that people bring up the branding as a good thing because it's getting airtime and visibility around it. And it's like a movement people can rally behind, but it's also making Republicans break out in hives. And so then there's just the question of whether it's inevitable that they're going to break out in hives, no matter what happens on the Democratic side, or whether we should be using less inflammatory verbs. I think the other thing is we need to see serious, real climate action. And addressing climate change is a big enough challenge on its own. And so how do we develop the set of policies that drive clean energy onto the grid, onto our streets and highways, and into industry and replace fossil fuels that emit carbon? That's a big challenge. The other issues that some versions of the Green New Deal and proponents of the Green New Deal talk about, addressing the economy, healthcare, those things have to be addressed separately. These issues are complicated enough on their own that we don't want to construct a behemoth that is so big that it collapses under its own weight. And for me, I'm dedicated to seeing climate action happen. And that's what I'm working on. And that's what I want to see happen first. And I think we need to craft an agenda that's focused on that. And what about the role of the big hydrocarbon and utilities? I think that any entity, any company that is working towards removing carbon from the grid should absolutely be part of the solution. These companies have 
enormous amounts of capital that they could be deploying towards that. They've got an enormous amount of know-how, an enormous amount of market pull. The question is, how quickly and willingly are they able to do it? And that really is depends on company by company. But we've seen a lot of progress from some companies, a lot of exciting steps in the right direction. We've seen other companies and other trade associations that have really dragged their heels. And so it's hard to either condemn or praise with a broad brush on that. But they have to be part of the solution. So the trend of the large institutional funds divesting from fossil fuels, is that productive? Should that play out more? They're going to make decisions on their own front from that. My focus is on the policy side. And I think that we need to figure out how do we incorporate the price of emitting and how do we reward providing clean energy into our policy? Because that's going to be a hell of a lot more of a priority than it is today. And so that's the part that we can engage on. And I think we also need to acknowledge that if companies in their advertising and in what they are saying in public is advocating for climate, they also need to put their lobbying, their trade association engagement, and other things in line with that. And if you had a big pot of money, let's say $100 billion, and you could allocate it towards anything as long as it was slated to maximize its impact on deep decarbonization, <laughs> where would you put it? How would you allocate it? If I had $100 billion, the first thing I would do would be to buy Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> and I'd move to London part-time and then, and then give money to others to advocate. Look, I think that what we've got to do, this is a challenge that ultimately is in the trillions of dollars realm. And what we need to do is figure out how do we smartly reorient policy to encourage and work with companies, labs, others to either develop the technologies we need or incent the right fuels and technologies to get on to our system and remove the ones that aren't. And I think it's going to be a big mix. I think if there was a silver bullet, it would already be used and we'd be farther along than we already are. But climate change and energy are big, grisly, furry problems. And that's why one single $100 billion investment or one single policy hasn't been found yet that can solve all these things. Yeah. And that's why it's hard for me. I mean, I'm getting more and more requests from either people looking to transition their career into this area or people that are looking to allocate their dollars philanthropically or people that are looking to volunteer outside of work and finding organizations they believe in. But because there's no silver bullet, as you described, and it's such a complicated problem, it's it's hard for me to know exactly where to point them. So speaking to them for a minute, what advice do you have? I think that we all have to wrestle with the scarcity of resources that we're dealing with, whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's passion. So I think that what I've learned over the years with Third Way is applicable more broadly, which is where do you have the passion where do you have the expertise and where do you have the resources to apply whatever you're looking to apply to this situation? And where's there something missing? So if you are an investor and you are looking to provide a modest investment into a technology, where's a technology that's underfunded that you get excited about or are passionate about? Or if you've just got time, What's the one thing that really excites you about addressing climate change that you want to dedicate your time to to help out with? There's always a gap that an individual, an investor, an innovator can fill, but they've got to be excited about it and be willing to wake up every morning and say, yes, I want to do this. So I think you've got to figure out how do you marry those things together. Every morning, I want to be a podcaster. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, covered a lot of ground. Anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Well, we have covered a huge amount of ground. I think that we've talked a lot about the challenges in this space and the challenges that the politics of 2019 present. But I also think this is an extremely exciting time. There have been, despite President Trump being in office and despite the mounting evidence that not only is climate change here, but it's having a bigger toll on the planet earlier than we expected, we are seeing people and states and others respond. We've seen an increasing number of states, it's grown every year in the last several years, move to 
first renewable energy standards and then clean energy standards and then more aggressive clean energy standards. We are seeing more Republicans starting to embrace climate action. We are starting to see more technologies being developed and starting to get uptake. And so it is not at all a hopeless battle. And there are more people passionate about climate that are stepping out and becoming involved in that. And so that's why it's still easy to get up every morning and work on this and come in and be excited to talk to you about this podcast and go back and work on the issue every day because there's more hope and more engagement to address climate change than I think there was two years ago, three years ago, five years ago. Yeah. Someone asked me the other day if I was more or less optimistic about us solving climate change than I was seven months ago before I kind of started this journey. What I said was that I'm more optimistic that there's ample things we can do, that it's like there's levers we can pull. This is under our control. Like there's a lot more that's within our control than I was anticipating, but it's a lot thornier in terms of getting us out of our own way than I was anticipating. Yeah, I think that's right. I think to your point in all of these questions, let's not kid ourselves. This is a really complicated issue. And so the actual solutions are hard, but we work on the political and policy side and Climate was barely talked about in 2016 in the election. And there were almost no Republican federal office holders who said, yeah, climate change is real and we need to address it. We're not in that place today. It is being talked about all over the United States, on the campaign trail, in the halls of Congress. It's talked about by some Republicans and by a lot more Democrats than had talked about it in the past. And there's a lot, the electric vehicle sector is, you're seeing a lot more cars that are about to come online and get into the marketplace. You're seeing a lot more states move. You're seeing a lot more companies committing to climate action. So there's reason to be optimistic, but to not take the focus off much more aggressive action and holding everyone's feet to the fire on this, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's a great point to end on. And it's like the drum that I want to be constantly beating, which is that take it seriously and be vigilant as hell but be vigilant as hell. Don't give up. We've got it. We've got it as long as we don't take our eye off the ball. Yeah, I think that's right. And if it's something to your point, we need more people like you. If you're out there and you're looking at the climate and clean energy space and saying, how do I get involved? It's definitely a space to jump into. There's a lot going on. It's really dynamic and we need more people in it. So now is the time to jump in. Well, there you go. Josh Freed, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. This is super fun. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.